As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Former Huskers turning success in sport to success in business. This is Red to Black. Hi, uh, this is Tom Osborne, and this is how I went from red to black. Before we get into this episode of Red to Black, we are so excited that Husker football is back. Make sure you catch Big Red Wrap-Up, it's game highlights and analysis on NET, Nebraska's PBS and NPR stations. Tuesday nights live at 7 on NET World and on Facebook, and at 10 o'clock on NET. All right, here we go, from Red to Black. Coach, thank you very much for taking the time to come in here and talk to us um, on our podcast. Very, We appreciate that very much. Glad thank to you. do it. What we want to talk about today is, f- first of all, talk about what just being associated with the University of Nebraska over the course of y- your life has meant to you and your family? Well, it's first of all, it's been kind of a long journey because I came here in 1962 and, and was very fortunate in that I, I left the NFL, came back here in January of 1962. And that was the same month that Bob Devaney came here from Wyoming. And so I went in and saw Bob and I, I was going to graduate school and I thought, you know, I'd kind of like to ease out of athletics maybe being a graduate assistant coach would be one way I can do that. So I went in to see him, and Bob said, well, I, I got plenty of coaches, but he said, I got these guys over and sell a quadrangle that are causing a lot of trouble. They'd thrown the dorm counselor out, and these were all football players, and he said, I want somebody to move in there with them and kind of ride herd and keep peace among the <laughs> players. <clears throat> so I did that, and I, I broke up a few fights, and settle things down, and apparently he liked what I did. So he, when spring ball came, he said, well, you know, maybe we could use you out in the field. And so that's kind of how it all started. I had, had no plan to be a coach, didn't have any desire to be a coach. But I finished my graduate degrees, and I just the one thing I couldn't do was turn loose to coaching. And uh, so I stayed here for off and on the next 46 years. Yeah. So. So it's been a long time. Because everybody in their life has has those moments where they look back and they think, man, if I had done this, my life would be here. Or, you know, if I had made this mm-hmm. decision, it would be completely different. I know that there was a time that you could have, you know, could have been a, a Buffalo, Colorado Buffalo coach. Do you ever look back on those times and think, man, thank thank goodness I didn't? Or, man, that would have been interesting to do something like that, different. No, I, I have no regrets about staying here. And, uh, and really, that was a little bit of a desperate move because, as you know, or maybe you don't know, the first five years that I was a coach here, we won a lot of games. Uh, but uh, those five years, we didn't beat Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And it kind of came down to a one-game season. So if you didn't beat Oklahoma, it was a failure. And um, and so uh, there was a fair amount of angst among the, the fans. And, uh, and we felt, well, you know, Colorado, you got the mountains and maybe be a little easier recruiting. And so I went out and took a look at it. Uh, I had talked to my coaches. I, I was I was going to take them all with me if they went. They thought, yeah, well, you got to take a look at it. <laughs> so I went out there, but 
but on the way back, I, I got thinking. I said, you know, I recruited these guys to Nebraska, and I told them this was a great place. And how am I going to stand up in front of them and tell them that I recruited you here, but I'm going somewhere else? I said, I, I just can't do it. Yeah. And uh, and so I, uh, I said, this is this is this is it. I'm going to live or die with Nebraska. I'm not, and uh, and if we don't beat Oklahoma pretty soon, uh, I'm probably going to get fired. But probably going to be that, more on the dying side than the, the living yeah. side, right? <laughs> but uh, fortunately, in 19. 78, they really had a good team. They were, I think, maybe the best team in the country. They came up here, and we knocked the ball loose a few times, and and Jeff Hansen knocked the ball out of Billy Sims' hands at the three-yard line. Jim Pillen fell on it, and we ran out the clock to to win the game 17-14. And, uh, and that kind of turned things around. People began to think, well, maybe, maybe the guy's okay, you know, and – they were not real sure, but they, they thought, well, maybe this will work out. And then we had some years where we won some conference championships and had some pretty good seasons and probably should have won a national championship in 1983, but we didn't. Could have won a championship in 82, but didn't. We were 12-1, um, and 13-1 and both those years. And then things kind of stabilized, and... Had a good coaching staff, recruiting went well, and so we finished out uh, fairly good. There, there's a lot to be said about talent on a football team, but there's also a lot to be said about building a culture of winning mm-hmm. and camaraderie on that team. How did you go about building a culture of, because everybody we've spoke to um, that played for you said that you built a culture of winning and hard work and dedication. How did you go about building that with those teams? Well, it certainly wasn't a one-person uh, project. Uh, we started something called the Unity Council, which um, was a good idea. Actually, Jack Stark, who was a sports psychologist, uh, came up with the idea. And so we had the players select two players from each position, two defensive linemen, two offensive linemen, two running backs, on and on. So we had 16 guys. And, uh, and they met every Tuesday night. And there were no coaches in the room and uh, only Boyd Epley, the strength coach. <laughs> and Boyd was kind of non-threatening because he didn't control playing time. And we said, your charge is to bring up everything that you see that's getting in the way of team unity and unity of purpose. And so there'd be stuff like, well, we didn't like what we had for lunch on Friday or we didn't like the movie we saw before we played Missouri or things that they would never come in and talk to me about, Mm -hmm. you know. And so I was able to address those things on Wednesday in the team meeting. And and so I was kind of putting out little brush fires. But above all, the players realized they were being listened to. They were being heard and that they had a voice. And these were people that were elected by them. They weren't chosen by the coaches. And so they were their representatives. And so, in a sense, we were listening to them. And we were hearing the things that were going on that, that they saw that I had no no way of knowing about. And I think that was important. And then part of the charge that we also gave them, we said, you know, we, we'd like to have a disciplinary code. We'd like to have your input. Because uh, so often maybe I would dismiss a player from the team for some some activity. And then another player would be, 
uh, run up the stadium steps for the same activity. But what the players wouldn't know is that I had told the player, I'd, I said, now this is the third time, and I can't keep giving you second and third chances, and if there's any more trouble, I'm going to have to dismiss you. And the other guy, maybe it's the first time it ever happened, and so they didn't know who was continually messing up and what they had done. And so the Unity Council was established. We had a point system, and so every time a player missed a class, that was a lost point. If a player was late to practice, this was two points. A player didn't follow instructions, that was a point. And any time you got to five points, you, you, you didn't play. We held you out of game. And if you had enough points, you were dismissed from the team. And if you did everything right, had a perfect re- week, you got a point back. And so when a player got to three points, he had to appear before the Unity Council. And the Unity Council was pretty rough on those guys. You can imagine, there were, yeah. There were no, no punches pulled. And so the players knew who was goofing up and who was continually a problem and who wasn't. And they really took matters in their own hands, and they straightened a lot of things out. And there were things I don't think I even knew about where they went to a guy and said, look, you stop doing this or we're going to take care of it. And uh, and so I think that um, some of the unity of purpose and some of the discipline uh, certainly came from coaches, but also came from the players. And I think over time the players developed a, a sense of ownership where um, – they had a tremendous amount of pride in, in the team, and, uh, and they weren't going to let anybody interfere with that. And, um, and as a result, I think that um, the culture got very strong to where uh, the success of the team for most players was more important than personal success. And that's pretty hard to do with young yeah. guys to, <laughs> to get them to where their own personal goals are or secondary to the welfare of the of the group, and uh, and so it uh, was a confluence of things that was part of it. Part of it, we were a little lucky in recruiting. We had some good players that came in here at the same time, and we had uh, continuity in our coaching staff. Where if we lined up in the first series and somebody had a defense that we hadn't seen on film. We could say, well, we saw this three years ago when we played Kansas. And so there was a lot of institutional knowledge that we could draw on and a lot of communication that was pretty quick because we didn't have three or four coaches coming and going every year. And um, so a lot of those things worked together. And, you know, from when you had said setting an example like you did about not you keeping your word. I mean, to me, that that's just such a baseline value to have is just keeping your word and the fact that you showed that to the guys back when you first started. And that was something that I think that helps people when you build a culture, because it's not like you can't go buy a culture. It's a, it's an intangible thing. But when they know the person that they're fighting for and the person that's running it is true to their word and they're honest, it's a really easy to get behind that person and fall in line and really fight for them. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I think the thing about uh, uh, integrity is that uh, it builds trust. And you can't have a good organization without a, a high degree of trust. And so when when we recruited a player, we never promised him anything. Um, quite often, even even though 
somebody maybe doesn't offer them cars or clothes or cash, uh, they'll say, well, you're so good, you're going to start as a freshman. Or you're going to be on the travel squad as a freshman. Or we're going to we're gonna make you the Heisman Trophy winner. And John Wooden, the basketball coach, said something that uh, makes a lot of sense. He said, never make a promise you can't keep. And uh, so a lot of that recruiting talk uh, didn't ring true with players. And, and so they... They often mentioned there was a book written by Mike Babcock, who, uh, and it was called The Heart of a Husker. And uh, he interviewed, I think, 38 players that had played over various time periods. And uh, they continually said that, that we felt cared for. And then one thing that was important was they said, you know, when uh, we heard a lot of promises from other schools that certain things would happen, and, and somehow it just wasn't very authentic, and we knew this was recruiting talk, and Nebraska never promised us anything. And, uh, and we felt that we could trust them. Now, we lost some players because uh-huh. we didn't make those promises, but I think for the most part, <clears throat> we, um, we lost the right ones, and for the most part, the right ones came. And, uh, and then I think the other thing that was important when you talk about culture was the walk-ons because uh, we, uh, I don't think most players really could identify who the walk-ons were and who the scholarship players were because they were all treated the same. And every year we would save three or four scholarships just for walk-ons. And uh, it's always tempting when you get down toward the end, you know you can get this guy with a scholarship. But we said no, you know, because the best investment we made was with guys who had already proven themselves. I mean, these guys were already first or second team players, and uh, and so we we gave them we we cut down the number of offers we made, and we had three or four scholarships every year for those guys, and so um, the walk-ons were important because almost by definition they were overachievers. They were guys who would work harder, make a greater sacrifice, often had a great sense of integrity, and uh, really a great sense of loyalty. And over over time, about half our team were walk-ons. And so I talked uh, one or two times to some guys who were highly recruited players, and I guess now it would be four-star, five-star recruits. We didn't have the stars in those days. <laughs> and um, they said, you know, the thing that really impacted us was um, – we came here thinking maybe we could get to the NFL because this was a high-profile program. But we saw how hard the walk-ons worked and and the sacrifices they were willing to make. And, and pretty soon their, uh, their attitude and the things that they would do, be on the scout team for maybe three years, began to rub off on all of us. And, uh, and we began to buy into the idea that that uh, really was important that we sacrifice our own personal desires for the welfare of the whole thing. And uh, so the walk-ons were a big part of it. And it wasn't just their physical ability and the fact that many of them turned into great players, but it was more the, the attitude, the culture, the work ethic that they brought to the whole thing. 
Well, I think that for, I didn't play football at all, except for two weeks in junior high, and I was not very good. You would not, I would not have been on your radar. I was a zero star. Um, but that, not just rubbing off from, from the walk-ons to the other players, but that attitude, speaking of somebody who grew up in the state, it rubbed off on everybody in the state. I don't know if anybody that's not from Nebraska, if that's like that in other states, but just, just so you know that that attitude that you brought to the team. Cause like you said, it, I mean, it was a successful team, but it was, we were proud of it no matter what. And that rubbed off on, on all of us in the state that grew up here. So th- thank you for that because it, it, I think it gave our state, people look at our state different. We're just different. Nebraska's mm-hmm. is different. I think that has a lot to do with this. You built a culture in a football on a football team, but you also built a culture, help build a culture in a state too. Well, I think if you think about it, um, you know, I've been in most every town in Nebraska often multiple <laughs> times uh, just because I'm old, but uh, <laughs> but uh, most every little town in the state at one point or another had a player or maybe several players who played here, and and those towns were uh, uh, proud of those guys, and uh, and so it, it did. I think the walk-on program had a lot to do with uh, unifying the state. And of course, we were very fortunate in that we were the only major Division One football program in the state, too, because there wasn't an Iowa an Iowa State yeah. rivalry and that type of thing. So, so as a result, uh, over the years, I think um, Nebraskans identified with Nebraska football pretty heavily. Mm-hmm. Well, and it was a big deal. Um, you know, we talked to Matt Verzal last week, but so my dad was a, a dean out at Mid Plains in North Platte. Mm-hmm. And so every year he'd do the school is cool jam. And so mm-hmm. like you and like, uh, like Brooke Berenger like came and he dunked in front of all these kids. So like the mm-hmm. being able to reach out to all these small towns and inspire these, you know, young men and women to, you know, Hey, you can be a champion, but you know, these are the values that we live by. We're accountable to each other. And this is how you build a championship future. Um, and I think that was really important um, back in those days to inspire yeah. young kids, especially, you know, little kids out in, in North Platte. Yeah. Yeah, I remember the school is cool stuff. And uh, it was it was kind of fun to go around to a lot of the towns in mm-hmm. the state. I, I didn't, wasn't able to go multitude of places, but <laughs> every year we'd go to four, five, six, seven places and, and uh, of course, the players went to more than that. Mm-hmm. And that was good. So uh, we want to talk about teammates here in a second. I just want to ask you a question: When you're sitting, kind of, when you're sitting by yourself in your den or out on your your deck, what do you what do you, what are the things that you think about? Like as far as memories from um, when you were coaching, or when you were when was it when you were in Washington? When you were coaching, was it <laughs> athletic director? What are the things that you tend to think about more than others? Well, right now I'm focused on on teammates mm-hmm. primarily, and. And and that came uh, relates back to my my years in coaching <clears throat> because um, back in the early '60s when we went out to recruit, very seldom ran across a young man that wasn't growing up under the same roof with both biological parents. But as time went on, that began to change, and uh, saw a lot more kids who uh, didn't have dads for were from single parent families, and. Um, and so, 1991, we decided, well, we'll take a shot at it, see if we can do something about it. And so I asked the football players one day in a team meeting, I said, how many of you guys be willing to serve as a mentor to 7th or 8th grade boys in Lincoln here? And 22 hands went up. So we went to the Lincoln Public Schools. We said, uh, would you like to have 
some football players serve as mentors to these uh, young people, and you pick the kids, and and so they did, and uh, and so it played itself out, and these kids got to be seniors, and we were pleased that of the 22 young people, 21 graduated on time, and the, the one who didn't was riding on a motocross circuit. He was riding dirt bikes all around the country, and <laughs> he did graduate, but he was making some money. But the thing that really surprised us was of the 22, 18 went on to college. And, oh, wow, that's uh, great. We, we raised some money to provide scholarships for him, and, and so uh, a lot of those kids did really well. So we expanded the program, first here in Lincoln and then across the state. And so today we're in um, five states, and last year we mentored 11,000 kids. Wow. And, uh graduation rate from those kids was 96%. That's and, incredible. And when you figure yeah. that uh, awful lot of them are living below the poverty line or single-parent uh, situations, you would normally expect probably a 75 80% graduation rate. So so anyway, we, we've learned a lot, school-based, one, uh, one, one day a week. And it usually is over the lunch period, maybe a 30, 40-minute lunch period. But now with the COVID issues, we're having to do online. So some of the mentoring is occurs is virtual. It's Zoom or some other uh, app, and uh, but a lot of it's still in person. And we'd like to hit 12,000 here this next year if we can. So it's grown a lot, 175 school districts, and... Uh, so uh, we think think it really has made a difference yeah. in the lives of a lot of kids. So we've heard you speak before, um, and a word that I've heard you use is trajectory, mm-hmm. and that is changing the trajectory of a young person who might be headed towards some bad behavior or a future that they uh, might not envision for themselves. You know, talk a little bit about how you've changed trajectories in uh, in, in young people's lives mm-hmm. through teammates. Well, I can I can give you kind of some broad. Uh, uh, statistics. Uh, we we follow our matches and, and we gather data, <clears throat> and we find that in about eighty eighty five percent of our matches that attendance improves. So when school attendance improves, then grades get better, graduation rates improve, percentage of kids going on to college improves, and uh, we think that's important. We also find that in about eighty to eighty five percent of our matches, that behavior improves. There's less. Uh, Classroom disruption, less substance abuse, less teenage pregnancy, uh, gang membership, and on and on. And uh, I think most people would say that's good. <laughs> and then uh, we also found that uh, almost all of our kids are more hopeful. And hope is a very powerful thing because so many kids grew up without much uh, hope for the future. And uh, if you have hope, then uh, there's something out there that's going to help uh, pull you on through. And, uh, and what, a, what a mentor can do is provide a vision of what's possible. And so we try to build on strengths. Most everyone has some things that they do better than most other people. And so we identify strengths and we build on those strengths. And academic majors that are built on strengths, the things that you do better, that you do well, maybe auto mechanics, it may be uh, something to do with science, it may be mathematics, whatever, 
you're going to do a lot better in school and you're going to do a lot better in college if you're doing something that fits the particular strengths that you, you have in your life. So we, we try to do that as much as we can. And so anyway, we're, we, uh, as I said, over the last 28 years, we've learned a lot mm-hmm. and, uh, I think we're doing a lot better. Thank you for just everything that you've done for, for our state and for, um, for kids all over the country, not just in our state, but like Chris was talking about the trajectory, you've changed a lot of trajectories for kids and that's, that's pretty awesome. And we're proud to have you as part of our family. Really? Uh, I appreciate it. Yeah. And I uh, just kind of as a, a shameless appeal <laughs> where <laughs> we, uh, we always need, uh, always need more mentors. And, uh, because uh, we, we we have probably a third more kids who want to mentor than we have mentors. Oh, okay. So if anybody listening, just go to teammates.org and we'll plug you in and uh, we can really use your help. Absolutely. And we'll get that tagged on the episode and put out on everything that we do. So, yeah. yeah. Coach, thank you for taking the time today. We appreciate it. And yeah. thanks for everything. Yeah, glad to do it. Thanks. We are so excited that Husker football is back. Make sure you catch Big Red Wrap-Up. It's game highlights and analysis on NET, Nebraska's PBS and NPR stations. Tuesday nights live at 7 on NET World and on Facebook and at 10 o'clock on NET. Ahura Media Production.